Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 1514, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the executive director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. This episode is brought to you in part by The Gospel for Disordered Lives, a new book from B&H Publishing, authored by Kristen Kellen, Rob Green, and Robert Jones. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 1514. It is a pleasure and delight to have you as part of our audience. We're coming to the end of 2021, which means we're also coming to the end of the Building Bridges campaign. So if you have not already, please jump online and sign up to give a recurring monthly gift. That is our goal with this campaign is to build up our monthly recurring donor base. So if you haven't, please jump online. You can sign up to give online or there is an address where you can mail checks. Uh, There are lots of people who are giving online regularly or who just like to give a one-time donation. Those are also available at our website, biblicalcc.org. Click on the donate button at the top and you'll find out how to how to give those one-time gifts as well. The Building Bridges campaign was kind of broken down into three phases. The first phase, we looked backwards at what God has accomplished in the past with the Biblical Counseling Coalition. And then we spent some time thinking about what's going on right now, what, who are some of the current voices we're hearing from. Uh, but this phase, we also want to look ahead to the future. So I'm going to introduce you to a couple people who are newer to the, to the leadership realm of biblical counseling and who we really hope and pray for will be with us for years and decades to come as we move forward together in biblical counseling, as well as some new resources and some ideas of things that we want to be pursuing as the Biblical Counseling Coalition. My guests today are familiar to some of you. Uh, David Dunham has already written. He's written in the 31 Day Devotionals for Life series, but he's joined today by his wife, Krista, and we're talking about their uh, new book, which is just a phenomenal book. I highly encourage it for all of our audience to pick it up to use in your counseling ministry, maybe for you personally. It's called Table for Two, Biblical Counsel for Eating Disorders. And I really appreciated the conversation that I had with David and Krista and uh, also just their transparency and sharing from their own experience, uh, both walking through this difficulty in their marriage, as well as their experience counseling others with it as well. Um, the sad reality is many of us will walk, come across somebody who's wrestling in this way in our lives. And unless you've personally dealt with it or been through counseling with it as well, you probably don't know what to think or don't know what to say about this topic and what does scripture have to say about it. And David and Krista do a fantastic job sharing uh, that information with us in that book. So I hope you check the book out and I hope you enjoy this interview. Have a wonderful day. Today, I'm really excited to have with me a husband and wife counseling team, as well as co-authors of a new book, Table for Two, Biblical Counsel for Eating Disorders. I have David and Krista Dunham with me on 1514. So David and Krista, thanks for being with us. Thanks. It's, it's great to be here, Curtis. Well, for those who d- haven't had a chance to meet you yet, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, my name is Dave Dunham. I am pastor of counseling and discipleship at Cornerstone Baptist Church here in Roseville, Michigan. That's uh, just north of Detroit, uh, just outside of the city. We've been here for about uh, eight years. And I'm his wife, Krista, and currently I'm a volunteer in the counseling ministry at our church while I'm getting um, my degree, my master's degree in biblical counseling, as well as um, being certified as a counselor. 
That's fantastic. And I really appreciate you guys uh, just gotten to know you in a few different ways in your ministry. Dave is also the author of the uh, Addictive Habits devotional and the 31 Day Devotional series, which I know a lot of people have gotten already in our in our series. And that actually flows into the, the book that you wrote uh, together as well. So why don't you tell our audience what led you to write this book? Yeah, well, it uh, it stemmed from our own personal experience. So uh, Krista had uh, an eating disorder for a uh, little over 10 years. Uh, and uh, we looked back often and thought about what we would have done differently um, through that scenario. I was not very helpful to her and we utilized as many resources as we could find, uh, but not many of them were very biblical resources. And so uh, in, in the end, we ended up saying we, we really need to write a book uh, that we would have wanted uh, all those years ago to have helped us. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a really, uh, I was encouraged both by your humility and transparency in the book, sharing your own story, uh, as well as just saying like, we didn't do it all right, but here's some lessons we learned along the way and wanted to pass that along. What, what was it about now that made you decide this is the right time to write this book? Um, truthfully, I really just started to turn a major corner and seeing victory over it. So I think coming out the other side, I was able to see more clearly that I wanted to help other people. Like if I could get past this and, um, and just see more clearly and think more clearly, I wanted other people to be able to do that. So it was really a, really a new um, feeling for me to feel that free from it, that I wanted to share that with other people. Yeah. I think there were a lot of ways in which, um, while the eating habits that Krista struggled with had changed, uh, a number of years back, I think she was realizing there were all these sorts of underlying desires and thoughts and, uh, attitudes that she was still struggling with. And as she began to see, uh, and experience freedom from even those, she felt like it was a good time to kind of reflect on that experience and process. And that turned into talking about the, the idea of a book. Hmm, that's really helpful. Uh, and you actually, you, you drew from, I mean, you journaled through this experience, Krista, and you drew from that and you even share some of your journals in that story. What was it like and how did you gain the courage to actually put that to, to paper? Because I'm, I'm sure there was this, I, I appreciate you wanting to help people in that, and turning that corner is what made you think, maybe I could do this now. But then you, I'm assuming, got hit with the realization like, man, I'm opening up to the world really with this. What was that like? How did you, uh, the Lord give you the courage to do that? I think some of it was ignorance that I didn't know, like how it was going to be difficult when I was doing it. Um, My family didn't really know what was going on when it was going on and didn't really, we hadn't had a chance to have a good conversation about any of it. So some of what I wrote in the book was brand new to them. And I didn't realize how much that was going to be difficult for me. And just seeing what other people Um, you know, kind of passing people in church and thinking, oh, they read parts of my journal, you know, that was a little bit difficult Mm -hmm. too. But I think, um, I think I just had to get to the place where I laid some of that aside for, um, for the glory of God to know that, yeah, it was a dark place and yeah, it was very personal and intimate, but like, I, um, I really, 
you know, above and beyond that, I wanted to make the name of Christ known. And Mm -hmm. I did, there were, there were battles with that to kind of continually lay it aside as I was writing it. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think in the end, I was glad that I did that. And I think too, like uh, one of the things Kristen mentioned in our sort of discussions about the process the things that were most helpful for her were, you know, sort of learning from other people who could relate, you know, having this sense that she wasn't alone and not all those people who expressed their thoughts, you know, over the years were Christians or, uh, or, or sort of interested in biblical counseling, but there were other people who could relate to her experiences. And so she, I think she appreciated the value of personal testimony and uh, kept sort of reminding herself of, of the importance of that for this contribution. And I just wanted to make sure that people who felt the way that I did could actually get a glimpse of what that really looked like for me. Mm-hmm. It, um, I think that really opens up a place to people's heart that I think just being kind of secretive and, you know, um, elusive about things just doesn't offer the same mm-hmm. sort of benefit. So I just saw the benefit and just even sharing little bits of it to say, this is my actual heart. And I want to know that you're, you know, I want you to know that you're not alone. Yeah, no, it's, it's really true. And that does come out quite a bit. It's not veiled language, you know, you're very real and raw, uh, but pointing people to Christ. And I think that's one of the beauties of this book and others like it is that the light of Christ is going to shine bright wherever it is, but it shines really bright in those dark, dark places. Um, and so you really, uh, do that well and, and honored and glorified him well through that. One of the things that's kind of uh, hard for me and just a little background for me and uh, is I had a, a good friend who, who did die because of complications related to anorexia, bulimia. So I've known the severity of this issue for years. Uh, but a lot of people still don't realize how dangerous it is and how severe of a problem it is. How do you help people, both counselors understand the significance of the struggle and then uh, people who you come across who are struggling with it, who maybe don't realize how big of a deal it is? How do you help them see that? Well, I'll I'll speak to counselors first. I think, um, actually, I was just reflecting on uh, Bob Kellerman's latest book, uh, uh, Consider Your Counsel about 10 common mistakes. And the the final one that he says common mistakes counselors make is they confuse the sufficiency of scripture with the competency of the counselor. I think so sometimes, especially in in our circles, we can uh, affirm the sufficiency, authority, inerrancy of scripture, the, the power of the scriptures to speak to all kinds of situations. And we can think, well, because the Bible is sufficient, I can go into any situation and start uh, helping people. But I think knowing that, you know, eating disorders are among the leading causes of, of death among mental health concerns, uh, that raises the level of, of importance for being well-prepared, knowing about the specific nature of eating disorders, the types of common um, uh, occurrences and uh, the potential for significant harm. It, it raises that level so that I go in as well informed as I can be about the, the nature of this issue. It is a, a highly, um, uh, the mortality rate is is a serious concern. And so you, you you want to go into being the most helpful that you can be. And that requires just some extra education on the issue. Yeah. 
And I think what's difficult when dealing with someone with an eating disorder is that that, you know, statistics and things like that and talking to them like, you know, you're going to die if you don't stop this. It doesn't matter to them. And so um, that is where it is so vital, as we talk about in the book, to have a helper involved, have, you know, definitely a counselor involved that um, and for the counselor not to be afraid to uh, sound the alarm, you know, like I think. Mm -hmm. And helping other people who have eating disorders, it is hard being on that other side saying, okay, when is the moment that I tell someone that this isn't okay anymore? You know, like to say this, this has reached a level of like needing severe medical help. And, Mm -hmm. um, so, um, some of that is just really important to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe that, you know, one of the points we try to emphasize in the book is the the layers of help are really important. So, you know, that, you know, I had a certain role to fill as Krista's husband when she was struggling, uh, but I was not in a position to do all the things that she needed. And so, you know, the, the effort of a team to come alongside someone uh, and it's, it can sometimes be that the, the, um, the added weight of multiple people can carry force that one loved one speaking to a sufferer can't, uh, or one counselor speaking to a sufferer can't, but the, the extra weight of multiple voices can sometimes do that. Yeah. So one, one potential way of helping them is to have multiple people speaking that truth into their lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the heartbeat of the Bible brings life changing hope and power to real people with real problems. Inspired by that conviction, the Gospel for Disordered Lives provides an introductory guide to the theory and practice of Christ-centered biblical counseling, intended to serve as foundational textbook for students in Christian colleges, universities, seminaries, and graduate schools. The book also provides a useful overview that working counselors can reference in their ministry context. Additionally, it can serve pastors and current counseling practitioners as a helpful refresher and a resource for common counseling problems. I love this new textbook. I'm going to use it in my training, and I hope you will too. You you talk about that in the book, the fact that you brought a team around. Krista, you, over time, uh, brought in a variety of people uh, at different seasons, but also a variety of people all at the same time to help you with this struggle. Talk about that and, and who all was involved in the process. I think in the beginning, you know, I, I had the one helper, you know, my, who's my boyfriend, my husband now. Um, and I think that's the, the pertinent part for the person who's suffering is to say, I just need help, you know, cause that's sometimes all they can do is say, help me, you know? And so then it kind of moves on from there, um, for the helper to, um, to help them to find other people. So I think he played the role too in my life to say, okay, maybe at this point you need to reach out to a friend at church at this point, maybe, you know, you should go out with friends. And there were definitely some of those decisions that I had to make myself. He couldn't force me to go out, but just to offer those suggestions kind of got me to the place where I was like, okay, now I'm going to start making these choices. I'm going to do this. And to the place where I am now, where I have, um, you know, people who know 100%, like what, um, what I struggle with and, um, to be ready to hear me when I say, okay, I'm, I'm not okay right now. Um, I can, 
tell them that. And, um, so that I'm not in a place where when I see it coming, I can say I'm struggling and then they know what to do to help. And I think that's been a huge place for me to get to, um, because, um, not that I'm 100% guaranteed not to struggle ever again, but to be in that place where I know without a doubt, I have someone on the other end of, of a call that knows how to help me. So you, over the years, you utilized, um, friends, counselors, um, spiritual mentors, uh, and then, uh, a spouse. So sort of compiling all these different voices at any given moment, um, kind of continued to carry the, the, the recovery process forward. Yeah. Yeah. And some people will, will, and I'm not sure if I, can't recall if you get in the specifics, but like you mentioned medical intervention or nutritionist or other people like that, because it is a, it's a whole body, uh, problem, right? I mean, cause it, it's rooted in soul issues, but it radically affects your physiology as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think quite honestly, you know, not getting that kind of medical care can make the, the counseling process more difficult, some somewhat, um, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say impossible, but it certainly impedes the process significantly. Cause you think about, you know, not, not getting the proper nutrition leaves your brain depleted of the nutrients it needs. And so your brain is even affected and, uh, it becomes very sluggish and very difficult to process things. And, uh, and so, you know, I just think about how much harder it is for me to do what God asks me to do when I'm tired and groggy, you know, I'm so much more inclined towards impatience and irritability. And well, if my entire body is suffering from malnutrition, doing the simple things, let alone the hard things is going to be challenging. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a helpful, helpful point to make. Uh, in addition to as a, as a counselor, especially as a biblical counselor thinking, uh, I've had this conversation with a lot of people recently, how much do we need to know about everything? Right. And you can't, the reality is we can't be nutritionists and physiologists and all these other things at the same time. So we need to in include a team. And Krista, to your point a moment ago uh, of just knowing when does this, when does this go from being a healthy stewardship of my body to being something that is damaging or harmful or sinful? Uh, sometimes as a biblical counselor, we can't, you know, we don't know, always know how to make that judgment call? Like what, what is an appropriate diet for somebody of this person's size? I don't know. <laughs> so having that, that team there to help you, I think is beneficial for the counselor as well as the person receiving counsel. So, um, well, that's fantastic. You mentioned, um, at some point <clears throat> the underlying desires that often accompany or lead to somebody sharing, uh, wrestling with an eating disorder. And Krista, you share in the book about uh, a really traumatic car accident that you went through. And um, talk, talk about that and maybe what that experience evoked, that strong desire that led you to seek um, comfort in some way through this struggle. Yeah. So, um, I was driving home from college and, um, I hit a snowstorm that came on pretty quick and, um, I was a pretty inexperienced driver. And so the overpass of course froze before the rest of the road. And I didn't realize that and kind of, um, hit 
a patch of ice and hit my brakes like you're not supposed to do. And I was driving an SUV and the car flipped upside down on top of a guardrail that was over top of um, a huge ravine, like a hundred feet or more. And so when I'm on top of this thing, I'm automatically thinking in my mind, like, I'm not going to make it. And, um, but by some miracle, my car came back down onto four wheels. And I think I walked away just thinking, Oh, okay, shoot, I made it, you know, like, but it wasn't till after the fact. Um, and even really weeks after that, that it really just started to process inside my mind. Like I don't have control of my life. I don't have control of my death. Like, and those two things, you know, that's all of our existence. And so I just came to the conclusion, like there's nothing I can do to control any of this other stuff, but you know, there was something in weight loss and calorie counting that felt um, secure to me. I, I could control that. And so um, it just kind of started the first thing that I really noticed. And I mentioned this in the book is just um, the way that I, kind of dealt with those emotions or processing all of that. I went in my room and ate everything that there was. And, um, and I, and I ended up, um, purging and it was in that moment that I just was kind of staring down everything and feeling like this is something totally different than just, um, dealing with emotions. It was, you know, it felt really huge to me right then, but, um, but yeah, so I do like to mention that, you know, my my issue did develop then into just kind of a control that I that I, you know, um, I didn't feel that control in other parts of my life um, and I was trying to gain it back. But I know for um, that's my story. And I know for a lot of other people, there's more traumatizing things that have happened to them or, you know, it's just other things in their life, they have different motives than that. That was my personal story and my uh, personal motive. Yeah. Well, I think I, I appreciate you sharing that because it's one of the things I found dealing with my friend as well as uh, studying this a bit more in college and and places is that the seeking of control is such a powerful motivator for a lot of people in this area which I think for people on the outside, they don't see that. They think it's all about weight loss and image and things like that. But the reality is, is they're often a lot deeper seated desires like that. And working with uh, people who've gone through trauma, that sense of a lack of control is something that's almost universal with everybody who goes through that experience. And it's, it's just, it's wild how Satan can use that reality that we aren't really in control to twist us to, to, to seek control some other place. Um, you mentioned a few others though, in the book that, cause control is not behind necessarily the issue behind everybody's story. You, you've talked about that right now, but what are some of the other things that might, um, that are maybe common, uh, undergirding motivations behind this for other people? 
Yeah. I mean, self-medication is a, a, a sort of self-soothing kind of uh, motivation can be common. People find comfort both in binging, sort of uh, that comfort food, sort of I eat to satisfy myself, but also in the restrictive behaviors. These become ways to manage negative emotions, to uh, resist anxiety or depression. Um, so they can become sources of comfort. Uh, certainly appearance, you know, that's uh, uh, one we sort of automatically associate. Um, I want to look a certain way to feel a certain way. Um, but I think one of the other ones is uh, a common motive is simply pride. Uh, this sense that I have mastery over myself, over my urges, over uh, my appearance. Um, and I think pride can end up sort of coming uh, in under other motives as well. So that you have these dual motives sort of uh, reinforcing one another. Um, I think, you know, Krista talks about in the book, um, just the sense of, um, at least I think it's in the book, <laughs> this sense of uh, pride for, you know, feeling like, she was maybe better than other people because she she was able to say no to this food or she could, you know, keep her calories to this level. Uh, and so there's this sense of accomplishment, this sense of I'm worthy because uh, I do these things. Yeah, she did share that in the book. She didn't just, she didn't just <laughs> divulge anything else. Yeah, that was a really, and that's the thing about the book that I, I like a lot of things about the book and I highly, highly recommend it to people. Um you're so transparent about all those things. And it's really helpful for people to understand both for the person who's wrestling to think somebody else gets me and the person who maybe is not wrestling, but wants to be a helper to, to really understand the experience. I think you, you provide that very well in the book. And then, but then you also move on to some very helpful stuff as well. And how do you, how do you move forward in this? Um, man, I could talk for a long time, but I, I just realized how, how long we've been talking. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about that, that the help that's in the book. Um, and you, you break down the, the helping process in three really broad categories. Um, can you tell our readers about those? The th three broad categories. Can you yeah, remind kinda, me what well, I'll just, it, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> remind you what I feel bad. Yeah. Education, self-evaluation, and restructuring were kind of three three yes. big um, yeah. stages or something like that. Okay. okay, great. Yeah, so, you know, part of it really is that the point you've already made, which is, you know, I have to understand the problem in order to be able to address the problem. And I think that's really helpful for the helper because it's so confusing. Um, you know, it's from the outside. It just it doesn't seem like it makes sense uh, to the to the helper. Um, you know, why can't you just you know, the solution is just eat more or eat less uh, and just do it. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't the, the helper doesn't seem to have the capacity to process all the internal struggle and thought processes and motivations of the sufferer. And so the education piece is really important for the helper, but I actually think it's helpful for the sufferer too. Um, and maybe you can speak to that just your own experience, but uh, I feel like the more you understood yourself, the more you were able to, to get the right kind of help and confront the right kinds of problems. Yeah, I think sometimes it just felt like something that was continually happening. And when I could finally put words to it and um, causes for it and sort of those moments along a timeline where I could see, OK, this 
was what I was already struggling with way back here. And now I'm struggling with it again to see these sort of patterns, then it just became way more clear to me, like Mm -hmm. what, what I needed to do or what I needed to ask for, or, you know, whatever, um, instead of just this big blob of suffering, you know, it just felt that way to me before I started to really learn more about it. And I think that's even what motivated me to move on, you know, in biblical counseling to, you know, from receiving it to, to giving it to other people was just, I saw what that did for my problem. It just, it broke it down into much easier segments for me. Yeah. Yeah, So then the self-assessment is really just trying to evaluate what are my specific motives? What are my specific desires and what are my specific habits? So we talk in the book about a number of things that, you know, are sort of common to eating disorders, not necessarily universal, but generally speaking. Uh, So, you know, there's those sort of food rules, things that I can and can't eat, things that I'll never eat, things that if I eat, I have to do this and this uh, to sort of make up for. Um, You know, we talk about sort of uh, the habits of isolation. So trying to do some sort of evaluative work to try and understand what is the outworking of this in my own life, the real specific things for me. So getting an understanding of eating disorders is great. Getting an understanding of how I'm manifesting that specifically. Um, so, and then the last piece, uh, restructuring the desire to change needs, uh, sort of help to get there. So we talk a lot about, uh, momentum, building momentum in our counseling ministry. So we'll say, okay, you've, you've got the snowball started. We need it to keep going down the hill and pick up more and more steam to, to get to the bottom. And so, Doing, making as many changes to your life as can be reasonable to help yourself resist temptation and keep going in the right direction. Change doesn't just happen. It requires us to, to work at it and make practical changes in our life to further that along. So I think, you know, one of the things biblical counseling is so good at is, is getting the theological and philosophical foundations in place. Uh, we want to make sure we also do the practical things that we emphasize practical steps, practical change, restructuring our life to resist temptation better or to succeed in, in growth more easily. Yeah. Cause patterns can just be so ingrained like that. That was my life, you know, and for my life to be that for so long, there's not another life to, to go to unless I create a situation where it's different instead of just going back to the same. Yeah. What's an example of maybe one of the practice, just so our audience understands what you mean by uh, the restructuring, one of the practical things that you do or have done uh, to change those, those opportunities, uh, patterns, et cetera. Um, I think like one of the ones for me and what I've, you know, had other people do is like, just not to have a secretiveness about your food or, you know, not, um, and in the situations where you are able to like, you know, eat with someone, because even Mm -hmm. in experiences that I've had with other people, it's like, they want to gravitate towards, um, well, I'm going to save my meal to eat it alone, even if it's with a spouse or, you know, whatever, um, just a secretiveness of, of eating was something that I tried to hold on to. And just to even just when possible, like make that so that you're eating, you know, with yeah. other people. 
Yeah, that's a good one. You know, making sure that you uh, you even communicate that up front. So my tendency is going to be to eat alone. Uh, I want to make sure that I eat my meals with you. Will you will you ask me about that? So setting up that kind of accountability, even in those those moments and, you know, not keeping that stash of secret food. Um, and so, you know, again, involving other people in that sort of uh, uh, activity. No, that's really helpful. And, and Dave, you pointed out the fact that we can be uh, maybe have a tendency to be theoretical or overly practical, but true biblical counseling is, is both. And I mean, I remember learning in my training early on, like the ideas of making roadblocks for temptation, like in restructuring our lives to res- avoid temptation and resist it and, and bring other people into it. But uh, the other side of maybe not the other side, but uh, another thing that we mix in so much is the gospel and who we are in Christ and those realities. And you guys bring that out really clearly in the book as well. So how does, um, I mean, (laughs) to throw this massive question out, how does the gospel uh, impact eating disorder? I mean, I think one of the things that was, as we were writing the book, you know, I, I had a sort of a clear vision of what I thought, you know, the outline of the book needed to be. And Krista came along after we had gotten um, a good bit of it done and said, I really feel like there needs to be this chapter on identity in Christ. And she, you know, from her own counseling, she felt like that was a a major uh, turning point for her is understanding who she was in relation to Jesus, not who she was in relation to food or to restrictions or to uh, fitness. And uh, so this sense in which the gospel gives us uh, a foundation for understanding ourselves differently. Um, You know, I think when we buy into so much of even Christians unintentionally buy into so much of what the world sells. Um, buy into so much of just what seems like the cultural norm and the waters we swim in, you know, having this, that idea reframed for us, who am I? Uh, and how does my relationship with Jesus Christ, how does my relationship with God through Jesus Christ change that? Um, it presented her at least, uh, with a whole new way of trying to think about herself. Not that, that theology just magically made everything go away, but it gave her a framework for saying the right things to herself, uh, for confronting the false beliefs and lies that she was tempted to believe. So it, it just really gave her tools to battle better. And so much of um, what I struggle with just was rooted in, in perfectionism. I just, I wanted to, um, to appear a certain way, or, um, even just for my own self, if I couldn't achieve these certain things, then I was nothing. And I would tell myself that. And, um, and one of the the phrases that I just, I love to tell myself is Jesus was perfect for me. So I don't have to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, that just really, um, shattered a lot of the things that I held most dear all through my eating disorder to just say, I, I don't have to do this. Like, and I can't do this. I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't intended to do that. And, um, and so just to see that Christ lived a perfect life and he died the the perfect death for the perfect sacrifice for my sin, um, just kind of broke down a lot of that for me. Wow. Well, thank you both for sharing. I have a whole bunch of other questions I could ask, and I just encourage mm-hmm. our, our listeners to, to, 
be sure to jump out there and get a uh, table for two. Um, the reality is many of you are already helping people in this situation. And for those who haven't already, the likelihood that you will come across somebody in your life at some point who's wrestling in this is, is pretty high. Uh, unfortunately, it's a, a broad and common problem. So I really appreciate you guys sharing this wonderful resource and I highly encourage our, our audience to go out and get it. Uh, I, Save the last two minutes or two minutes. There's two of you, so you get four uh, for a segment we have called Two Minute Favorites so that our audience just gets to know you in a little bit of a funny way. Are you guys ready for ready for this? Sure. Sure. All right. I'm going to start a four minute time, which I've found is a little bit of an advantage. Uh, it seems like couples or, or co-authors get through our list of questions a lot faster than individuals, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. So here we go. What is your favorite food? Coffee. (laughs) Oh, um, cheesecake. (laughs) What is your favorite color? Black. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't even have a favorite color. All right. Um, Yeah. Favorite sport? (laughs) Favorite sport. Uh, Soccer for me. Um, I like running. All right. Mm. Favorite sports yeah. team? Uh, Columbus Crew. Uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes. <laughs> Favorite gift you've ever received? Ooh. Probably I received a guitar when I was in uh, high school. That's probably it. Oh, that's hard. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Favorite gift you've ever given? Hmm. Uh, Krista was uh, working on developing her writing skill, and I I set up this, uh, I kind of refinished a desk and retooled it and gave it to her as a, as a gift for uh, her writing. So that, that's maybe the favorite thing I've given. Uh, one time I had my kids write out um, how, like how much they appreciated their Nana and like mm-hmm. things they appreciated about her um for i think it was her 60th birthday and i just i love the reaction i got from her and like i don't know what it meant to her yeah all right favorite word Ooh. Uh, probably right now my my i love words and but I, what i have a tendency to do is grab one and just use it relentlessly unintentionally so i think the one i'm using the most right now tends to be verbose <laughs> so um, and I tend to use the word glorious all the time to describe lots of things like, I don't know. Like cheesecake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, least favorite word. I know. Mine is slacks when referring to pants. I don't, um, I really don't like that. Yeah. And I have a tendency to use that word. So, um, oh, I don't moist. Maybe that's just a weird one. So yeah. Favorite book of the Bible. Oh, Right now, I've been really pouring over the book of James, so that's uh, been very, very much my favorite for the moment. Um, you sort of took mine, but I, I do really like Psalms, and I know a lot of people say that, but it helped me through a lot of my struggles, so I, yeah. I really do like Psalms. That's good. Favorite book outside of Scripture? Ooh, the the Doctrine of the Knowledge of God on Frame, hands down. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. You make me look bad. Oh, actually, this past year, I read um, Elise Fitzpatrick and um, oh, Eric, Eric Schumacher, Schumacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, their book Worthy. And it's I know it's my favorite book this year, at least. All right. Uh, favorite candy. Ooh. 
probably I I like a good candy bar, so I'm going to say a Nestle Crunch. Oh, I thought you'd say Reese's Cup, and then we'd be the same. Mine's Reese's Cup. <laughs> uh, favorite ice cream flavor? Rocky Road. Um, I really like vanilla, but I'm very specific that I like Hagen dazs <laughs> All right. If you could choose any superpower, what superpower would you choose? Ooh. I want to fly. Yeah, maybe speed. It certainly would make uh, uh, traveling much easier. So. Super fast. All right. Favorite Bible verse? Hmm. No, that always changes. Yeah, maybe uh, he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. That's a good reminder to me when I feel, you know, you're an idiot, David. You're never going to (laughs) change. Yeah. Yeah, I think lately just I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me mm-hmm. and to really have, you know, the idea what that means of not just, you know, all things that I want to do, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, what what he desires and um, and along with his plan. All right. So you, both of yours are in Philippians. So Philippians 1, 6 and yeah. four thirteen. Yeah. So, but neither of you picked Philippians as your favorite book. Interesting. No. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that. Our timer ended in the in that answer, Great. so that wraps up our time for four minute favorites, as well as our time together. So, Dave and Krista, thanks you so much for being with us on fifteen fourteen today. Thanks, yeah, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of fifteen fourteen. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. Also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.